podcast is beyond belief. Veg Leafy Greens here on VegCast 109. Veg Cast. A full menu from first to last. Veg Yes, it's another full menu of vegetarian podcastery coming your way with VegCast 109. I'm Vance, back with you again. And this time out, uh, as always, it's a full menu, but it's another really special occasion because we have with us on the phone this VegCast, Nava Atlas, who's going to talk to us about a new cookbook, a new book about greens and how to cook them and what to do with them. Uh, And by that, we're talking kale, we're talking collards, spinach, mustard greens, beet greens, you name it. The whole greens family, that's going to be some kind of fun because it's Nava Atlas and it's kale. Uh, Nature's Perfect Food, we're going to get into that. We're also going to have a song from a group called Sad Guru. And we will also be having a science fact about the counting abilities of bears uh, that may surprise some people. Uh, So that's all going to be coming up on this edition. So, as always, I do invite you to sit back relax and crank up the mp3 player as we deliver to you this 109th VegCast 109 is sponsored by Tofurky, creating delicious, innovative, and affordable meat alternatives from non-GMO organic soybeans since 1980. And back in the 80s, when I went vegetarian and there didn't seem to be a lot of resources available, one book that really uh, helped me get into the swing of things and learn about vegetarian cooking was Vegetariana by Nava Atlas. And uh, she's put out many, many cookbooks since then. She's gone vegan herself, and uh, as have I, and she's now doing vegan cookbooks. Her latest is uh, one that we're going to talk about now called Wild About Greens, and I guess we're going to kind of explain it as we go, so let's go to that interview right now. Okay, right now on VegCast, we are pleased to be once again speaking with uh, prolific and seminal cookbook author, Nava Atlas. Nava, welcome back to VegCast. Thank you for having me back. And uh, long-time listeners will remember, uh, of course, you've uh, written many uh, vegetarian and vegan cookbooks, but especially Vegetariana was uh, one of the first ones that really helped inaugurate my uh, vegetarianism back in the day, so uh, that has a special place in my heart. And you have a new uh, book out now called Wild About Greens, and as might be expected, it focuses on greens. Now, what uh, what exactly is the scope of that? What 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 are we talking about when we say greens? I focused on leafy, dark leafy greens for the most part, not lettuces or cabbage, the kind of things that the kind of leafy greens that people are really pretty familiar with, from mainly from salads. Most people know how to use those. But it seems like the popularity of things like, especially kale, kale is the new darling of the food world, as you well know. So kale, collards, arugula, bok choy, some of the Asian greens, um, 
you know, spinach people are familiar with too, but there really are so many different things that one can do with spinach uh -huh. that I think it is also underused and worth okay. exploring more. So not a lot in this about how to, like, take a head of iceberg lettuce and cut it into wedges and put it on Well, no, no iceberg lettuce at all and really no lettuces. <laughs> I, I feel like, you know, people, people are familiar with lettuce. It's things like collards and kale and all the Asian greens seem to, I, I, I call them both enticing and intimidating because they uh -huh. are beautiful. They're beautiful to look at. You want to take them home. You practically want to put them in a vase, but that's not what they're for. <laughs> So what do you what do we do with them aside from the usual garlic oil, uh, I'm sorry, garlic and olive oil saute, which is not bad in and of itself, but they're really so flexible. There's so many right and exciting well, uh, things to do with them. So okay, well, so what um, uh, what really spurred you to say now? I mean, their kale is trendy, but what was it just that that made you say I'm going to write an entire book just uh, focusing on greens I mean you were talking in, before we started kind of about how a lot of people are in CSAs and that, that kind of leads to a, a certain situation it, that but it was also more of a personal thing which is that my husband decided to grow chard it was uh -huh. let's say two summers ago two or three summers ago but and it was just so abundant that he would come in with this huge batch of chard, and I'd say, wait a second, I haven't even used yesterday's. So it just points out how prolific these kind of greens are once you start growing them, and I think that's why they're so uh, popular to grow in, in, farm, in um, CSAs and offered in farm markets, is that they grow well, they don't require any particular kind of soil or weather conditions other than not too hot and not too rocky. People do very well with them. And then there's just so much. And um, you just wonder, well, what am I going to do with all of this? So I call that the uh, Swiss chart explosion of 2009. And, <laughs> I, you know, had I known how to freeze them or use them more at the time, you know, I ended up freezing them and freezing them improperly. And then I ended up having to toss them and I think we were talking before we started to record about how people bring home so many leafy greens from their CSA pickup, and they don't know what to do with them. And I've heard people say, I feel so bad, but I end up composting half of it. And, it, you know, you're you're literally throwing out so much nutrition that way. Yeah. So when I, I tried to get more information then about leafy greens, and I found that the last fairly comprehensive book came out in 1996, I thought, this is really a top... Yeah. And um, you know, I think in the interim, kale has gotten to be so popular, and all the things that people love to do with them, including making smoothies, that's a very new thing, and that was not covered in the 1996 mm -hmm. book. So that since I have such a, a penchant for them, why not me? Right. Well, so um, I wanted to go off in a couple of different directions. One is that uh, you mentioned how beautiful uh, they are, and I, just as a sidelight, last year during when Occupy Philadelphia was uh, protesting the Comcast Center, I went by there and actually noticed that this, uh, you know, this big corporate headquarters uh, out in their front courtyard has approximately 200 heads of kale uh, that are obviously strictly ornamental. They're just, they're, you know, they have the green kale, the kind of pink kale and all this uh, that... It made me think, well, how many people might be fed by this stuff that you're using as just to beautify your your headquarters? But they are beautiful, and I should stress that uh, you're uh, a very accomplished artist 
and the book is uh, is illustrated throughout with with line drawings of uh, of leafy greens, which are not that easy. It takes a certain amount of patience to draw those, doesn't it? It did, but you know, and it's funny because before I started it, I was sort of dreading it. But once I started it, I realized, well, it's kind of fun. I was able to zone out and listen to music, and it, I don't know, there was something meditative actually about drawing all these leaves. So I, I was almost yeah. sorry when I finished the last one. Well, it looks great, and I, we should just mention the book itself is a beautiful uh, book, not just for the drawings, but it's uh, well packaged and it's. Uh, it's got kind of a nice uh, effect of, of kind of looking like uh, a lived-in book uh, just at the point that you, you get it. And it really is kind of enticing and makes you want to crack it open and start using it. Now, just before we get into a lot of the, the recipes, as a point of information, I know that kale is something that will grow like year-round. What What is – can you just give us a quick – in terms of growing things, you were talking about growing chard – uh, if people w- hear this podcast and they're in, you know, somewhere in the Northeast or East Coast or whatever, is there is there a time now that people could put things in or put something in but not something else? What's the general? Well, you know, I was going to say, I'm going to preface this by saying I am really no gardener. Um, my husband and I always joke that, you know, <laughs> if we ever go broke, he'll be, you know, we can hire ourselves out. He'll be the gardener and I'll be the cook. And we yeah. really don't ever, almost don't ever cross paths. <laughs> he really doesn't okay. like to cook and I really don't like to garden. But, you know, I was surprised when I did a radio show uh, that was out of, uh, near Phoenix and they said that they cannot grow most leafy greens very successfully because it's too hot. And they are ah, delicate. Right. And sometimes greens like cooler weather. Um, so right. I would say that anywhere else, maybe, but where it's hugely hot, people can still put it in. Now, here in the Northeast, we're still pulling kale after Thanksgiving, and it's really good, probably until it gets to be you know, really heavily frosted or snowy. But the leafy right. greens actually do like cool weather. The how-to, I can't give, and the book does not go into that. But if people are interested, I'm, I'm sure the information is quite well, widely yeah. available. Well, that's fine. So let's, if we can just talk about kale specifically, and I want to ask about this, this trend of massaging kale, because when I first saw this, I thought this was, uh, this is ridiculous to be massaging your food because it'll spoil it. Obviously, if you are constantly, you know, massaging it, it's just going to get spoiled and think that you're going to, you know, treat it like that all the time. What Food is supposed to serve us, not the other way around, right? What? <laughs> Why are we massaging our kale? <laughs> the way you put that is hilarious. But um, <laughs> um, and, and this one article that this book was covered in was also saying um, you probably like to, would like to have a massage yourself, but if you can't afford it, you can at least pamper your kale. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> but okay. uh, anyway, this is sort of a new trend, too, and this was something I found that was not covered in, in earlier books. And all it is is really you're not going to be spoiling it at all, but and maybe just the opposite because you're going to be using the kale raw rather than cooking it. You know, and any amount of cooking is going to compromise something a little bit, but we try to use cooking methods that are quick and don't leach vitamins and minerals into water in any case. But massaging kale is about uh, cutting the leaves into narrow strips. Obviously, it's been cleaned already. <clears throat> Taking either a little bit of olive oil and rubbing it into the palms, or some people like to use Celtic sea salt. I, I prefer the olive oil method, me- method. Just putting it in a bowl and literally just massaging it between your palms and fingers, and it just 
softens, it becomes brighter green, the volume reduces, and then you can use it raw and combine it with all manner of other things in a salad. And once you get used to it, I just say it's really addictive. It is so good uh-huh. that way. It becomes sort of crunchy sweet, and it's just so good. So it actually does kind of take some of that bitter edge off of it? You know, with kale, I don't really detect that much of a bitter edge. I think some people do, but it definitely does. And then when you combine it with other things, for example, there's a really easy combination. I like to combine it with Napa cabbage and dress it in a sort of a sesame ginger dressing and with maybe some sunflower or pumpkin seeds. It's just such a simple and really... Mm-hmm. Well, I... Personally, the thing is, I like raw kale in in salads and stuff. But the rest of my family is not as wild about it, uh, so to speak. Uh, so, but I wonder, have you massaged it yet? I haven't. That's the thing. I mean, I'm wondering if this is what uh, I need to kind of. You know, I think you need to do that. It, it makes a huge difference, and really, you only need to massage it for, let's say, depending on how large the batch is. If it's a little bit, thirty seconds, up to sixty seconds, depending on how much you have to work with there but also combining it with something else that's more softer and more familiar like a soft green cabbage or napa and then with that sesame ginger or vegan mayonnaise oh it's just i mean i could really have that every day well so uh other than kale we have there's a variety of uh greens that we're talking about and people when they think of greens they do obviously immediately think of salads but obviously your book uh, has a lot more than salads. So what are, what are some of the ways to use greens that you might not have you know, thought of right away or the average person might not think, oh, this is, would be a good uh, dish to use greens in or a good way to use them? Well, um, th- yes, I had to think about that a lot because I think people really were pretty stuck on ideas of how especially the darker, sturdier greens like kale and collard should be used. And um, so I have different chapters. The basic preparations goes into the sautés, the braises, and the stir-fries, and those are all pretty simple. And then I, I, I very much like to combine greens with other sturdy ingredients like beans and grains, pasta, and other veggies. Like I have a sweet potato and green stew with a, you know, a bit of a curry feel to it. Mm-hmm. That's already kind of a, a reigning popular recipe from the book. The softer greens, like uh, arugula, watercress, I mean, you can use those raw and just incorporate those into dips. That was a little bit unexpected. Uh, I have a what's called a very green avocado dip, so it's almost like a it's almost a marriage of guacamole and hummus, and with some spinach or arugula mixed into it. It's okay. really good. Just serve it with tortilla chips. That sounds um, great. Yeah, and then, you know, the green juices and smoothies. Right. That's also something kind of newish to do with them. And then I, I think there are greens that are better than others in smoothies. Uh, spinach just disappears flavor-wise. I mean, you can still see that it's green, but you don't taste a real it's, it's a raw green flavor. Other people right. like raw, raw green flavors. Kale is good in smoothies as well. Collards are surprisingly good. I don't like chard or the bitter greens very much. In fact, somebody else was interviewing me and said that his wife made a mustard green smoothie, and he said as much as he likes green smoothies, he said it was really hard to tolerate. (laughs) So I don't think I would like a mustard green smoothie either. Well, mustard... Um, I'm I'm sorry, sorry, go ahead. No, no, you you speak. 
Oh, I was going to say I'm really on a roll here. And then, of course, the other big thing nowadays is kale chips. People oh, yeah. drying kale in the oven, and kids are crazy about it. It's a really good way to get kids to eat lots of greens. Yeah. That's not my personal favorite. I mean, I have to admit, I'm I'm not the biggest kale chip fan in the world, and I'm really not sure why. I just feel like if I have a head of kale, I'd rather put it in a salad or a smoothie personally, but I understand why people like it. It right. is a very cool snack. Yeah, it's, and it's uh, very good for you. We should just mention for anybody who is not up on this that uh, you know dark leafy greens are, I think it, it's unquestionably the best nutritional bargain uh, as a food source that we can get. They're all low in calories, uh, low in fat. Yeah, I can fat help that you out with that. Good. Yeah. Yeah, and I was going to say for vegans especially, they're a really good source of absorbable calcium. Right. The other foods might have more calcium, but these are this is absorbable calcium. And one of the highest is actually uh, collard greens, but they all have, they're, they're all good sources of calcium. Well, just, uh, we're about out of time, but since you mentioned collards, I wanted to just touch on uh, the, the whole traditional greens, uh, like in the southern cooking, the way that you hear the word greens and the, the methods of cooking that I, I think, grew up with some of that, although it was already kind of watered down by the time it got up to uh, southwestern Ohio, but uh, it kind of turned me off of greens uh, because the main method seemed to be to just... Uh, first of all, I mean, whether or not you're mixing ham hock or any other animal-based thing in there, it just really seemed to be to try to smother the, the natural flavor of the green and cook, cook them until they, you know, uh, into submission, basically. Did, did you take stuff from that tradition? Did you adapt that? Did you find no, things I, that you just <laughs> took wholesale or what? No, I, I discarded that one because I think that you're right. The traditional way is to boil collard greens for 20 minutes and you're leaching out all the vitamins and minerals that way because then afterwards you, you know, pr- pretty much you're discarding the water. Yeah. The better way to do collards, and it's so delicious, is just to strip the uh, leaves off the stems, roll them the long way, like almost like they're cigar-shaped, and then uh-huh. cut them into really thin shreds shorten them a little bit and stir fry them they stir fry up in three minutes they are so sweet and then you can combine that with i, I like to combine it with other noodly okay pasta yeah, or good. spaghetti squash and it's it's so quick and and you really retain the integrity of the green that way so that's my favorite way of cooking collard greens although there are others but i don't like the boiled to death either yeah they lose all their nutrition and all their flavor and all their color yeah well that's uh, thanks for kind of restoring the the green in the greens uh, for us with uh, this this whole book about greens. And now that I mean, you you keep on uh, turning your attention to different uh, things. Is there now that you've you've handled the greens? Are you you know moving on to I don't know root vegetables? Are you taking a break? What's the what's next for Nava Atlas? Oh, I never take a break. I'm also an exhibiting visual artist. I'm working on a, a graphic biography. Food is still always going to be there. Um, I, think, I think it's just there's always more to say. Every time I think I'm done, there's just some great new idea comes along. Right. Well, it's it's always good to see uh, what new ideas Nava Atlas has, what you're uh, turning your attention to, and Wild About Greens 
uh, is is the latest, and uh, it's a great survey of the whole realm of green leafy vegetables. And I, uh, as somebody that's trying to get more of those in my diet and trying to find ways, I really appreciate the fact that that you put that out, and I think a lot of people out there uh, appreciate that too. So thank you for that. Um, and I just should also say thank you for uh, taking time out today to talk with us on VegCast. My pleasure. I had fun, and I hope to talk to you about a new book in the future. Okay. All right, great. I hope we can. All right, see you later. Bye-bye. That's a song called Vegan Girl by Sad Guru. Maybe a little bit of uh, vegan girl stereotyping going on there, but it's all in good fun. At least I assume it is. You can uh, go to our show notes at VegCast.com to find out uh, how to get more Sad Guru links and music. But while you're doing that, I'm afraid that we here at VegCast are going to have to move along to the science. Our science fact for VegCast 109, black bears demonstrate they can count as well as primates and prove it by using computers. I'll read that for you now. Yes, it turns out that while we were trying to measure black bears' ability to just do very rudimentary things like count, they've actually developed their own computers and are using it. No, wait! No, seriously, here is how this article from the Daily Mail, London newspaper, reads. Tests have already shown that our primate cousins can count, but now new research indicates for the first time that black bears also possess the ability. In a series of tests involving three captive bears, researchers found the animals are able to differentiate between the number of dots shown to them on a screen. 
This is the first published work with bears working on a touchscreen. It hasn't been done with any large carnivores. Jennifer Vonk, the researcher who led the study, was quoted as saying by the BBC. The research, published in the journal Animal Behavior, involved presenting the bears with two sets of dots, or arrays, on a touchscreen computer. Now, one bear was rewarded for touching the screen with a greater number of dots, while for the other two bears, a correct answer was the screen uh, with the array with fewer dots. The Oakland University team wanted to ensure that the bears were not merely estimating magnitude, a skill that has been shown by many mammals. So, they varied the pattern of dots and the shaded area on which the, the arrays were shown, and in some tests, the dots were also moving. If there's more dots and less area covered, it's a better indication that they actually do something analogous to counting rather than just estimating the amount of something, Dr. Vonk said. Similar tests have been carried out with primates in the past, but this study is the first to show that bears may have cognitive abilities that are their equal. It really opens up the door to asking all kinds of comparative and cognitive questions with a species that really hasn't been investigated in that way before, Dr. Vonk said. And coming in now as your friendly announcer, I'll add it's a species that we also have people going out to kill because they're a menace to city dwellers. And we have to, uh, at least in New Jersey, and now we're hearing more of this in Pennsylvania as well, uh, the black bears, they're just, they're marauding, they're all over the place, we've got to do something, oh I know, let's just kill them. So we now have to kind of ask ourselves, <laughs> doing that uh, comparative and cognitive kind of study there, which of these two species actually has it going on more intellectually than the other? That's the kind of question that comes up inevitably when I read to you the science fact. All right, we are just about done with VegCast 109, but before we go, I wanted to remind you of a couple of things. One is Vegan Pizza Day, which is coming up on June 30th. Uh, this weekend, if you're just uh, if you're subscribing and you're just getting this podcast in your feed, uh, be sure to celebrate by having some vegan pizza. There are a lot of businesses that are running specials. People are doing vegan pizza crawls. It's uh, kind of a crazy time, so uh, be sure to get out there and celebrate the ascendance of vegan pizza on Vegan Pizza Day. And uh, the other thing I sometimes mention that I am now a columnist uh, on The Vegan Beat for the Philadelphia Daily News, and a story is coming out that I'm pretty proud of, and I hope you'll check out. Uh, it is on a familiar topic, which is Rich Landau and Kate Jacoby and their seminal vegan restaurant, Horizons, which uh, was in Philadelphia from uh, February 2006 through uh, the end of June in uh, 2011. And, of course, they've now gone on and opened up Veg, but we're looking back at Horizons uh, since it's a, a year since Horizons closed and looking at four different uh, vegan businesses that have been opened by people who used to work at Horizons. Now, some of these people you will know from previous VegCasts, others perhaps not. But uh, I encourage you to go to philly.com slash veg and check that out and uh, let all your friends uh, find out about it, too, because uh, we want to spread the word about great vegan dining in Philadelphia. And, uh, oh, I should also mention, uh, I was hoping to mention it in this column, but there just wasn't room. 
that uh, I recently wrote up a, uh, a little blurb, a few blurbs on Philly and its vegan scene for Veg News magazine. Uh, the latest Veg News, you want to run out and grab that uh, as Philly was compared to Washington, D.C. as to which uh, was the more vegan-friendly city in what Veg, co- Veg News called the middleweight class. So I'm not going to spoil it for you now, but uh, you'll want to go get a copy of that to find out which city was the winner? Yeah, baby! Oh, um, not that that should be taken as uh, any indication of which city won, but uh, that was an interesting piece, and uh, a large part of that, of course, if not most of it, uh, goes to the efforts of Rich and Kate at Horizons and Now Veg for doing what they've done to really get uh, veganism on the map in Philly and get Philly on the map in the world of veganism. And now, having said that, it is time me to get out of here. Veg hey, I want to say thanks to our sponsor, Tofurky, making delicious, innovative, and affordable meat alternatives from non-GMO organic soybeans since 1980. And I also want to thank Nava Atlas for talking with us about Wild About Greens and Sad Guru for sending us Vegan Girl to play. And, of course, I want to thank you, the VegCast listener, for downloading and subscribing to VegCast. Hope to see you at Vegetarian Summerfest, where I am now headed. And after that, I'll have more podcastry for you. And until that point, please get out there and live like you mean it. VegCast.